Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But it's mostly about Star Wars. Kevin, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Yeah? yeah. You want to talk about The Mandalorian some more? I do. I'm ex- I'm so excited that, it's, that we're getting back into it. And, um, you know, it's only from the time we're recording this. I think it's three more whole days. If we stay up midnight Thursday night, we can watch it before Friday morning. No, I think we're going to say it's four more sleeps until The Mandalorian Season 2 for us because I, um, unlike you, do enjoy a good night's sleep, but you know we're going to make it to Friday and it's going to be awesome. I, For what it's worth, I enjoy a good night's sleep. I just don't do it very often anymore. Fair, fair. Sorry to bring up a sore spot. Um, but I, I think you know we've kind of already talked about all of the exciting, just basic plot level issues in The Mandalorian Season 1. But, you know, just to kind of like recap high level, how would you describe what what we learned in season one? So I think uh, I think there were it was really a, a, a character story. Um, and I really liked the sort of episodic nature of the show. So it was a lot of different, you know, individual stories. The plot was sort of chopped up into individual stories, but they all had to do with people and relationships and the creation of um, the um, the clan of two which is the Mandalorian and the child. Right. And I think that's exactly the right word for it because we learn about Mandalorians in so many different Star Wars worlds, but the whole clan aspect that they have is so much larger. And here we are and we're seeing a clan of two is kind of the end result of um, the Mandalorian, who we learn is named Din Djarin, and his relationship with the child, a.k.a. Baby Yoda, and the adventures and mishaps and possibilities that they have together. Yeah, and I think the Mandalorians are actually such a fascinating kind of people in Star Wars or culture in Star Wars because most, for the most part, other cultures are very monolithic, right? You've kind of got like the Jedi are largely all like the same in a lot of ways. There's not like subcultures of Jedi, right? The the Twi'leks, for example, are pretty much all, or at least the ones that we meet are pretty much all the same. And the Gamorreans are all the same. And the, you know, uh, Ugnaughts are all the same. And the Mandalorians have always been, you know, each clan is extremely different and independent um, down to, you know, like uh, sort of... Um, like racial facial features as well as you know their sort of beliefs and their behaviors and the way they are so the mandalorians have been one of like the most interesting heterogeneous cultures in star wars where everything else is like it seems like everybody of the species you know are the same culture they're they're not and this is now introducing yet another aspect to that right and i guess to that point, though, we do see a little bit of that on Naboo it, with the Gungans and the Naboo people that, you know, they live completely different lives. Whereas I think within uh, the Mandalorian culture, we see these different uh, clans or, or tribes or whatever you want to call them. And they don't seem to strike any kind of harmonious peace. Whereas we do see that even though the Naboo and the Gungans didn't really get along that great, they just both had their own set of ways to live um, on the planet. And then eventually they found a way to strike up a harmony. But we haven't seen a harmony really on Mandalore. Uh, yeah, not not really. I mean, it seems like there was the time during the, the reign of the Duchess where at least some of the clans were getting along. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and so I think that what we see in the season one of the 
Mandalorian is we do see some remnants of that of some of those clans. We just don't know what we're seeing. Are we seeing Death Watch? Are we seeing Clan Ren? What what are we seeing? Yeah, and I think that there are there there were some references at least in some of the you know material outside the show that at least one of um one of those you know there's the one there's the one brief scene when um the Dinjarin comes back with his Camptano of Beskar. And that one kind of big Mandalorian guy gets in his face about, you know, hanging out with Imperials or doing work for Imperials that apparently he's a Vizsla, which kind of tracks because the Vizslas seem to be a little bit more aggressive toward the other clans um, and feel entitled to be in charge. Um, and I think there's a, an aspect of jealousy that this guy's got Beskar and he doesn't and he's a Vizsla and so he should. There were, there were a couple references to that having to do with like the color of people's armor and things. And it definitely Din Djarin when he was a, a, a baby and he was rescued as a foundling, that was Death Watch that rescued him based on the uh, like sort of the colors and, and the kind of weapons that they were using. And so, yeah, some of that has come out, but then there are actually, uh, you know, there are also then a ton of Mandalorians in there where we know nothing about their clan and we know very little about the origin of the armorer. Right. And I really hope that we get to learn more about that in season two. I have a bad feeling that that's going to span into seasons three and four, too. Um, But that notwithstanding, if if we kind of look at the episodes individually, they're each roughly 30 minutes. um, And very few of them truly leave us hanging except for episode seven, which is a clear continuation into episode eight. But the first episode, we're introduced to the Mandalorian. We're introduced to the guild. Um, what do you see for the future of the guild? We, we kind of see that it's a loosely put together union of bounty hunters that have some kind of code of honor or ethics or just, I, I don't even know if honor and ethics are the right words, but they've got some kind of code there. What, what do you see of them in the future moving forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Bounty Hunters Guild, which has been around for thousands of years will continue and will continue to be a background element of this. Um, you know, the the Bounty Hunters Guild through, you know, various other materials and things is predates um, the Empire for sure, existed during the Republic. It was something that's that's been around for a long time. And yeah, it's not so much ethics as just a code of rules that govern how people are allowed to behave in it to make sure that they continue to get business. And so uh, I think the bounty hunting guild is going to continue. I think Grief Karga is going to go back to sort of running his, you know, sector of it um, off Navarro. And I imagine that people are going to continue sending bounty hunters after um, Din Djarin for, you know, some period of period of time as the Imperials will continue to want to capture him and the child. From the previews of the season, it looks like the Imperials are going to take that matter into their own hands a little bit more. But I imagine that we're going to see some bounty hunting, and that's probably going to remain his source of income um, because it seems like kind of those other crimes, like the uh, the episode with rescuing the guy out of the prison ship, doesn't really seem to be his speed anymore. Agreed, agreed. So uh, going back to two things that you talked about was uh, the Gunslinger, which is episode five, and that's where he takes a bounty job Uh, there's a guy trying to make his way into the bounty hunters guild and he he's incompetent he has no business uh taking this up as a professed profession but he he pairs up with mando and the two of them mando pretty much being the guy who's going to get things done um they head out trying to find this uh bounty hunter known as fennec shand and that is uh you know just pretty much the top tier 
uh, bounty that you could bring in, but for the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda. So we're left hanging there. So I think that that's a thread that we can pull on into season two as well. Yeah, and it, it's it's left to be seen if, you know, at that time there was a bounty out on Mando and the child. Grief Karga, after, you know, they saved his life more than once in the, the battles around Navarro, uh, promised to clear his name with the guild. So whether he's still a bounty um, from a guild standpoint is to be seen. It would It would probably... I would guess that he's no longer wanted by the Bounty Hunters Guild. And so, you know, because the implication there was that the guild itself was putting up a bounty on him. Um, now, the the way the Bounty Hunters Guild work, they may clear his name, but if the Imperials pay the guild to hunt him, um, he may yet remain a member and also a target. And that is a perfectly reasonable thing to have happen and probably what will. Yeah, money talks. And there is a fantastic bounty hunter out there by the name of Fennec Shand who may find herself uh, looking to partner with the Imperials. No, she died. I don't think she's dead. You don't think she's dead? She got shot in the gut. I don't think she's dead, dead. And then the, and then the boots showed up. So you're thinking that she's not dead? That I'm somebody saved her and dead. that she's still around? Yeah. That would explain some things I saw on Twitter. Wouldn't that make a lot more sense? It would make a lot more sense. Because she just had way too much opportunity for additional adventures. Because otherwise we have to bring in a new character that is apparently as impressive as she is. And where are we going to find that? Because wouldn't we have already run into them? Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Interesting. Th- that's, uh, I my, assumed my she was dead, but now, now you've got me thinking. Well, we do know they're going to bring in another character to try to square that circle. Right. With um, Boba Fett and potentially somebody who has Boba Fett's armor as a different character, which I feel like is going to be a a subplot. I'm not very interested. Yeah, agreed. And we talked about not needing any more Boba Fett, but here here we are. So, you know, kind of then the other way that he looked to make money was in episode six, The Prisoner, where he decides that he doesn't want to do the bounty hunting thing. And he goes back to some old uh, criminals he used to hang out with. And it turns out he's just, he actually always makes the right choice. He is a morally stand, like upstanding kind of guy. He, he does try to make the right choices. And a lot of times that involves shooting people. But um, he, he does seem to be bound by a code of ethics and be trying to make good choices. And he does try to look at what is the case going on and try to be the hero in the story. And I, I think that now he's not going to be able to partner with criminals like that. But we—he's got three angry guys that he left in a jail cell. Yes, they're probably not real happy about that. At the same time, they're locked up in a New Republic prison ship that they are on video trying to break someone out of, and also murdered the one person on the ship. So I imagine they're probably going to stay there for some time. Right. They can. I, I mean, we could never see them again and no big deal. Uh, or they could somehow figure out how to be broken out. Or again, um, you know, the New Republic doesn't really seem to have its act together as we come to learn by episode seven, uh, you know, with the Force Awakening and all. But ultimately, there's three very angry people that uh, have no code of morals, no code of ethics, and are looking to get retribution against Mando. That is true. Yep. So 
the the kind of final thing is is that we meet some good friends we meet some upstanding people and some of them uh survive season one and some don't so let, let's talk about our, our friends who unfortunately we uh must uh tip our hat and, and uh pour one out for uh, ig11 yeah essentially yeah. <laughs> um so who who are you gonna miss the most um probably ig um i think that he was a more interesting character in some ways than um than quill uh especially in that he sort of broke through mando's um you know obvious hatred for droids got him to care about something that wasn't human got him to you know uh trust in 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 this in in what was an enemy um, and it was a, you know, sort of a motivator for a big character arc for him. And so it would have been really kind of interesting to see those two continue together. And also just his, the way that he behaves in a fight was, was pretty fun to watch. Agreed. I, I mean, obviously when you're a droid and programmed to be an assassin and b- bounty hunter, uh, you have a lot of cool skills. So he was great in a fight. So I agree with you. I'm going to miss IG-11. Quill, I, I think was great, but... I'm not going to miss him that much. I, I think his character really served a purpose. I, I think that we're going to need to see that purpose put into a new character or existing characters adopt those things that Quill brought. So, and I think we sort of got set up at the end of episode eight where Cara Dune kind of shows a little bit um, of that maternal parenting type uh, action that Quill was very good at. Yeah, I think that's right. I also, I just, as an aside, I felt like Quill was a really interesting character, but it was awkward that they made him an Ugnaught because he was the only Ugnaught that had any of the behaviors that he had. Like he was the only Ugnaught in, and and they've shown up all the way back to, you know, Ugnaughts on Bespin uh, running the trash and, and the, uh, the, the carbon freeze in Empire Strikes Back. And then there were a lot of Ugnaughts in uh, Rebels and uh, Clone Wars. And none of them spoke, spoke basic. They, they all like, they looked a little bit more piggy. They didn't seem to be all that intelligent. They did stuff, but they were always like, you know, kind of sidekick characters. Um, Hondo had a couple dudes that were on his crew, um, that, that he really liked, but like the Quill's behavior, his serious demeanor, cause they were kind of always goofy, right? Characters. And yeah. they're, they're kind of uh, comic relief. And so the fact that his behavior was like that, I don't know why they had to choose that species. Um, it was a very like uh, incongruent with the rest of the depiction of those guys. And so it, he, his appearance has always felt weird to me. I would agree with you there um, because there's no way that Quill would have found, like fallen for Hondo's shenanigans. Hondo was all about, you know, taking advantage of, of these people that were a little bit more simple. Um, and, as an Ugnaught, um, I, I think Quill made his species seem more noble than they had previously been portrayed, which is great because that kind of rounded out his story arc to to have his passing, have him be a hero. Um, but yeah, I, I think that we're going to need uh, those skills that both IG-11 and Quill brought, we're going to need to see those manifest in some way in season two. And I don't know where I'm expecting to see them, but I I would like to. Yeah. And I don't have high hopes that they're going to be around for too long. You could see a world where like Ahsoka and Sabine could step in at least. And I think they will um, 
I think they will in some respects uh, step in to teach Mando a little bit more about how to be a father and be a mentor and be whatever to uh, the child. And and that was something that Quill was doing, but I'm not sure that they're going to be sort of the long-term members of the team. I think they're going to, I expect, I really hope I'm wrong, but I expect that they're going to be kind of a passing moment and, you know, probably around for one, maybe two episodes. I, I think you're right. And it's okay if that's the case, because the longer they're around, the less Baby Yoda content we have. But... That notwithstanding. <laughs> Would you not love three episodes of just nothing but Ahsoka training baby Yoda in the ways of the force? Yes. Yes, I would. That would be wonderful. I would watch all three episodes repeatedly. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, kind of going into what we expect to see in season two based on what we know from season one. Uh, there was an interesting pattern I noticed in the naming of the episodes of season one. Um. Every episode where there's some really negative stuff happening, it's titled The, and then it moves forward. So we have The Mandalorian, The Child, The Sin. Then we have Sanctuary. Not The Sanctuary, just Sanctuary. And, and that's very interesting because that is, it's a place, it's a feeling, it's all positivity, but for the fact that they have to go out on the run again. But it, it's a brief respite. It, it's really an important stopping point for the Mandalorian and the child um then we we go back to the same naming scheme we go to the gunslinger the prisoner and the reckoning with episode eight being called redemption and there's no possible way these were accidents so do you anticipate the season two following the same trend uh yes I do and because I agree that they weren't accidents and if you think about it Really what that pattern shows, it was sort of three episodes of introducing new characters and new concepts. And then Sanctuary was a potential inflection point, which, you know, in a different way could have ended the series. Like if he had taken his helmet off in that that episode and decided to stay there on that planet um, and nobody found him the way that he, I mean, right. His intent was to sort of end the show there or at least end it for a while. And then he's not able to do that. And he has to go back into you know, back into the mix and then redemption being, you know, really, I'm not sure whose redemption they're really talking about there, but it, it's either, you know, the redemption of IG-11 and the redemption of Quill and as well as, you know, the beginning of his path of redemption, I guess, but I'm not really sure what he has to redeem himself for. Well, I think as a lifetime bounty hunter, he's done things he's probably ashamed of. Uh, and when he allows his helmet to be taken off, I, I almost feel like that is a moment in, in which we learn that he is going to truly take this new path moving forward. He's he's not going to be the bounty hunter. I, I mean, he may take the occasional gig, but it seems highly unlikely that that's going to be his go forward strategy. And he is being redeemed and potentially reborn as a father. Yeah, that's basically true. Yep. So if you were to guess the episode that Ahsoka and Sabine were going to appear in in season two, what would you want it to be named? Hmm. Do you think it's going to have the or do you want it to just be one word? No, I think it's going to be a the. Um, And I think because it'll be it would probably be something like the teachers or something like that. And it's going to be a. Because I think it's really going to be a huge character development moment for 
the Mandalorian and probably for them and for some people around them, right? Because there's going to be so much knowledge revealed in that episode that it's probably not, although one could see an argument that it would be kind of like uh, an episode just called like new knowledge, that it's going to be a step away from everything, a little time out where they're going to find out a bunch of things and then be driven on onto a new path. It could be a good inflection point episode. So I'm going to disagree with myself and go with a not the. Not the. I'm going to go with the and maybe call them the sorcerers or the Jedi or the teachers. I, I don't know. I, I think that there's going to be it, it's going to be a the. Okay. But. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see how long they 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 make that wait. There's a rumor that the first episode is 50-50 minutes long instead of a half hour, and you could almost see because there's so much that was sort of left hanging at the end of the last one and you you know, if they make a choice to go to a less of an like an episodic model and go to more of like a, a more traditional long story arc model, you could see that first episode being set up to like give a backstory to a whole bunch of things. But you could also see them staying on sort of the the 90 style episodes that they're doing and just drip out the backstory over the course of the whole season. Right. And, you know, that kind of brings us back to season one with the dripping out of the backstory that I think that we're going to see some really cool things coming from is that we saw in the last episode um, where we learned about Din Djarin's family and, or briefly learned about them um, and that he's hiding uh, during what we presume to be the Night of a Thousand Tears uh, and he's rescued by Death Watch most likely and, you know, move, moves forward. So what we need to figure out is what what was his training like? Are we going to see flashbacks to that? And is that going to mirror what uh, BY's training looks like? Yeah. And I actually am not sure that that is the Night of a Thousand Tears. I think that that was so my my reading of that because there were Separatist battle droids. That was just some random battle during the Clone Wars. Oh, The Night of a Thousand Tears happens later when the Empire purges Mandalore of warriors and so that bat, like what what oh. we saw there was just was just his sort of origin story, which would make a little bit more sense from a sequence because I think we are going to see flashbacks. But what we're going to see is his training on Mandalore because he was found by Death Watch. He was put into I forgot what they called it, but it was the the something the the reserve or some some organization of training warriors, and that was where I think the the way comes from and the creed. And then he was trained by Mandalorians, and then the Empire comes and slaughters a bunch of Mandalore. Which that would explain more, because I was still kind of, I, I was fuzzy on the details, because we didn't see Moff Gideon when Din Djarin was rescued by Death Watch, but we know that Moff Gideon knows his name because he was there on Mandalore for the Night of a Thousand Tears. So That's now right. it's all coming together. That, that makes a lot more sense yeah, to me. Yeah, and Moff Gideon's not quite old enough to have been a leader during the Clone Wars as well as during this time period, because this is what, some 30 years after? 35 years? Something? Yeah, something and like so, that. And so, right, cause, well, because this is after, right, remember, this this takes place after the rise and fall of the empire and some time lapses and it's the beginning of the rise of the first order so this is some like 35 years i think after the end of the clone wars which means that din Djarin's like 40 right which um i mean 
I that know. tracks. Yeah, that tracks, right? Yeah. But Moff Gideon was probably not... He doesn't look old enough to have been in charge of anything at the time of that battle. He, was, he come, came up through the ranks during the Empire, and then he was in charge of intelligence and some other things during the Purge of Mandalore. That, that all makes a lot of sense yeah. timeline-wise. But I do think we are going to see that training, and I think it is going to be interesting to see him potentially trying to train Baby Yoda as... Some sort of like because he's gonna ultimately try to train him in the only way he knows how, which is the way of of a Mandalorian warrior. Even though the armorer said like, no, this guy. Because remember, she's like, you can you have to take care of him until you either find his kind or he becomes of age. And he's like, what? Am I supposed to train this guy as a warrior? And she's like, no, nah, that's not gonna work. But she's like, so you're gonna have to find his people. But you could also see him trying to instill some discipline the only way he knows how, and that we'll probably get flashbacks to his own training and backstory as a young Mandalorian. We'll, we'll learn more about what it truly means when you say this is the way. I think so. I think we're going to get a little bit more of that. And I think that's going to address some of the questions about what this is the way, right? That it's, it's very different from the way other Mandalorians that we've seen to behave. But like we said earlier, there are a lot of clans of Mandalorians with their own behaviors. And so it's maybe just one that we've never seen before. Fair, fair. So speaking of the way, what's up with the helmets? Why don't they take off their helmets? Yeah, and I, I mean, it's, it's not really well explained, except to say that this is probably what that sect of Mandalorian warriors believes in um, as sort of a way to instill discipline. You could imagine that if, if he's part of a kind of warrior-trained organization of mostly foundlings, and that probably tracks because, you know, he always said, save some for the foundlings. I was a foundling, right? When he's talking to the armorer, you could see there being like some sect of Mandalorians where they don't remove their helmets because they don't, they want to be Mandalorians first and not whatever species or whatever, you know, wherever they came from or whatever they were, they basically abandoned who they were and became Mandalorians by culture and to do to really like instill that sense of culture the same way that, you know, people in militaries wear uniforms and and whatever that wearing of the helmet and not removing the helmet is how you show commitment to you know the creed of being that form of Mandalorian. But it is it is something that comes up a lot in discussion because certainly Mandalorians of you know, basically every other group of Mandalorians we've ever seen have been perfectly comfortable with their helmets off, except Boba Fett, right? And this may be the tie back to Boba Fett too, is that you never see, now Boba Fett's got literally a total of like six minutes of screen time, so we don't know much about him, but it's entirely possible that Boba Fett is an early member of of the way and that that's somehow going to be the tie back to see him. Perhaps, I I hadn't thought about it that way. Boba Fett just always struck me as, a dishonorable type and not one to be a, a part of such a very strongly held creed, but who knows? Yeah. And I mean, there, there was, there was one in, it's no longer canon, but there was a book called uh, Tales from Tales of the Bounty Hunters, I think. Um, and there was a story about a little bit more backstory on Boba Fett. And I remember in that there was a thing where he never took his helmet off and that he had like, he actually had like feeding tubes and water tubes inside the helmet so that he literally didn't have to take it off even to eat. Um, and that that was part of who he was. And then that's no longer canon, but you could see that being sort of a basis for this, this behavior. I do love that one scene in the Mandalorian season one, where the woman on the sanctuary planet asked him when the last time he took his helmet off and he's like, yesterday <laughs> well i mean it, it 
so that was in season four or in episode four. And then in episode eight, we see um, his mask come out. And besides the fact that he's bloodied and injured, he's clearly been, you know, practicing fairly decent hygiene. He's been, you know, occasionally shaving like he, he seems to take his helmet off when he's got privacy. So. Yeah. Well, and he, he like the, the point is that he takes it off to eat, too. Yeah. Right. And so um, he just doesn't eat in front of other people. Uh, also, he could use a haircut, but that's a whole lot. Right, right. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I just we've never once seen like a barbershop or a salon in Star Wars, have we? No, we really haven't. Interesting. That's weird. Yeah. Well, especially when you think of like all the uh, highfalutin people on Coruscant that like their fancy outfits and crazy hairstyles, you'd think that we would have seen one. Yeah, that's wild. You don't see a lot of like normal day-to-day life stuff though. So, you know, I think in The Mandalorian, it's the first time I ever saw a space toilet. Oh, yeah. 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 No, you're you're right. It's just there, there's so many things that they they obviously have that are similar to what we have. It just it goes without talking about or saying or anything like that. But yep. a- anyway, we're, we're off topic here. So I, I hope that we learn a little bit more about the whole helmet thing. Uh, I personally don't want to have the question answered if um, that Twi'lek that we meet in episode uh six the prisoner if she actually ever saw him with his helmet off because i don't think no i, I don't hope think not that's, no i think that was a whole that was just a gag that i hope not, so yeah. i hope so um i'd like to think mando had higher standards than that but uh or if he didn't then that he kept his helmet on so you know, everybody's got their thing. Yep, yep, yep. Anyway, moving on. Um, the other thing that I think we really need to have resolved is how come no one knows who the Jedi are? Yeah, I've given this a lot of thought um, and other people have as well. So some of these are thoughts I'm stealing and some of these are thoughts of my own. But you have to remember that at this point, right, the the galaxy, the Senate had like the, the Galactic Republic had some like 4,000 systems that were members of the Republic. And each of those, if you imagine that each of those star systems has planet with between, you know, a billion and 10 billion people, which is not unreasonable, right? We're talking about like trillions of beings in this galaxy. Meanwhile, at their peak, the Jedi had like 10,000 members, right? And so it's pretty reasonable to assume that there's a good number of people, especially like your outer rim types who have literally never heard of the Jedi, right? Like this would be the equivalent if on, on, you know, in, in our world, like the, uh, have you ever heard of the, the, I think it's like the 17 Ronin? I have not. No. Okay. Very famous story of, uh, Japanese samurais. And I'm sure I'm butchering the number, but it was a group of samurais whose masters had all been killed and they, and they went around doing good works, which is sort of the basis actually for the Mandalorian. He's effectively a Ronin. Right. Most people, especially in Western culture and and on our planet, have never heard of this, even though it's a relatively common story in places where it is. Right. And so you could easily see that this like this group of like sorcerer law enforcement officers that patrolled mostly the core and the inner worlds, word of them never really even made it out. And if it did, it was like, yeah, I heard about these like priests that do stuff about things and stuff. Right. And so it kind of explains why why most people haven't heard of them. I mean, even Han Solo had heard of the force, but clearly didn't believe in it. 
right? And he was pretty well traveled. And so I think it's just one of those things of, of, you know, our point of view on the Star Wars universe always has Jedi in it. We always see Jedi, even when there's like no reason to have Jedi, we always see the force and we always see Jedi. So from our point of view, it's a very common thing because it's in every story that we know. But most people who also go to the bathroom and take showers that we all that we've never seen, right? We've never seen a space toilet, they've never seen a Jedi, that math checks out for me. But it doesn't check out for me because there were instances in which the Jedi came to Mandalore that are not too far distant past. So if you try to tell me that something that happened here on Earth in the last 40 years that resulted in a massive battle or an overturning of power that no one has any clue what it was, like at least have an idea, but to just call them a random group of enemy sorcerers. But I I mean, we had Obi-Wan, we had uh, Ahsoka Tano, we had unfortunately Maul's reign over Mandalore like I'm really surprised that there wasn't some kind of rumor and gossip of force wielders amongst Death Watch who was training Din Djarin like well I mean how did that not come up well to be fair there's a little bit of a rumor of it that the armorer says I've kind of heard of this and she heard of him as a race of enemy sorcerers but if you think about it the Jedi when they came to Mandalore, they only interacted with the upper echelons, right? I mean, Obi-Wan effectively only only interacted with the prime minister, the duchess, and her immediate like family and staff, right? Maul was like a shadow leader. Most people didn't know that he was in charge because he kept he kept a prime minister in his spot most of the time so that the so that the republic wouldn't find out it was him, right? Ahsoka Tano showed up and she fought Maul, but like nobody saw that. No, point of order. So when Ezra and Sabine wind up back on Mandalore, when Sabine decides to join her family again, um, and, and she takes over in Clan Ren. So at that point, you know, let's do the math. Din Djarin is probably already being trained up on Mandalore. Well, he's being trained up somewhere, right? But... The Clan Ren people didn't really interact with a lot of the other folks, right? So, like, the Clan Ren people and the Clan Vizsla people probably knew about Jedi. Some of the Death Watch people did fight Obi-Wan Kenobi on a couple of occasions. And, to be fair, and I'm going to go ahead and disagree with myself a little bit, right? Pre, uh, pre Vizsla, who is, was the, uh, the one and only Mandalorian Jedi, was the creator of the Darksaber, which was an iconic sword that most Mandalorians you would think would have heard of, and therefore would go all the way back and understand that the Jedi existed. But at the same time, like maybe among the foundling uh, warrior ways, they just didn't talk about it because it wasn't relevant. I don't know. I just feel like it... it- such a non sequitur there's got to be something to explain why they don't know these things and that i must have answered in season two yeah i i'm afraid you might be disappointed because i think they're just going to run on this like people just don't know what jedi are well if for whatever reason they happen to explain everything in the first episode this friday night we will begin our following episode with me saying not only that i love you and that you hopefully agree with me on that that you know that but that in your face i was also right but we will see (laughs) I, i i i welcome that introduction um i am not sure that that's really what's gonna happen well hopefully it is yeah any other uh 
wishes, dreams, uh, fears for season two? Yeah, I. you know what my, bi- my biggest fear is that they're going to somehow, right? So like Baby Yoda had to come from somewhere and they kind of established that he wasn't a clone. Therefore, he is the child of something, which implies that there are more Yodas out there and we know very little about them. And I'm going to be maybe... I mean, I think we're probably never going to know the answer. I've got a feeling that this is going to be an ongoing quest and it's not like in episode four, they're going to stumble on the planet of the Yodas and Din Djarin's mission will be over. So I'm guessing we're never going to find They've the answer. They've already agreed to a season three. So. Right, yeah, and, a, and potentially a four, according to Giancarlo Esposito. Um, but if we find out that there's like a planet of force-wielding Yodas hanging out there that just never get involved in galactic affairs and that were never discovered by the Empire of like the most powerful, like you have to think collectively, like a whole planet of Yodas would be the most powerful force nexus in the entire galaxy that like no one knows that exists would 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 be kind of far-fetched. So we're going to Ultimately, there's going to have to be some resolution to that. And I just really hope that it's not something dumb or something where, you know, they uh, where where they have to have a bad explanation for why they weren't involved. Yeah, I mean, my guess it's unfortunately going to be something along the lines of a Superman ripoff where, you know, like the, the planet's being destroyed and they put baby Yoda in a little shuttle and hope for the best. But I don't know. We'll have to see how that goes. But I would love a planet of Yodas. I mean, I think a planet of Yodas would be great. It's just going to be really hard to explain at this point in the timeline. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. But other than that, I'm I'm pretty excited. Um, you know, I um I think we are going to get more Mandalorian story. We already know the owls are going to be involved. Um, we we met them briefly in season seven of Clone Wars, so that's going to be a thing. I think we're going to get more. Dark Saber backstory, which is always fun. I think we're gonna get more search for for some sort of Yodas and Jedi. We may even stumble across some other hidden Jedi who are probably not gonna make it out of the season because um other than, you know, Ahsoka conceivably making it out and continuing into her own show, we know that between here and the and, you know, uh the the rise uh the oh the Force Awakens, that there's really, you know, not a lot of Jedi activity going on. So you know, um, but I'm I'm really excited for it. I think there's a lot of places they can take this story, and they've done a really good job once again of keeping a lot of the rumors capped. Other than who some of the people in the show are, they're not releasing previews to the press, and we really don't know what's going to happen. And I'm there for that. Yeah, and I think that you know you you gotta just support any organization that is going to basically risk all of the Christmas sales um, and Disney's made plenty of money. So don't get me wrong. But the fact that, you know, they, they could just preview a whole bunch of this stuff and have everything ready to be bought for Christmas and, and all of that. And and I, I think that, uh, you know, we're we're going to see some really cool things happen. And, you know, like a, a Sokotano action figure or something like that, like that. That may or may not be in the works, but who only knows? Um, I will say I saw an interesting ad, which I, I found unusual that it was targeted at me, as you know how much I hate drinking tea. But there is a tea brand that has a special release of tea coming out with a picture of Baby Yoda drinking tea. Oh, I know. It was That's adorable. Cute. I yeah. still don't think it would taste good, but. Sure. You should try it anyway. <laughs> no, I hate tea. Yeah. Um. 
Any relationships you want to see happen? I mean, I, I think that the family dynamic, obviously, that's being created is is really interesting and, and it's a good non-traditional family story. Um, in a way, I hope there's not, there's sort of an obvious play to some sort of like Cara Dune, Din Djarin, um, you know, relationship. And I think it's probably better to not have that happen. I thought it was really great the way that they portrayed a potential love relationship for him and then why it wouldn't work out to sort of close that off. Um, but I think I would like to see him start to have some better interpersonal relationships and maybe not, you know, sort of your traditional romantic relationships, but somebody who's a partner that helps him with his quest and with his, his duties as a father, I think would be, would be a, a, a neat and an interesting portrayal. I agree. And I just also hope that they don't give us some weird relationship between Cara Dune and Grief Karga. Like they, they don't need to expand their relationship any further than business associates. So yeah, I think yeah. that I agree with that. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's all good stuff. I am so excited. I wish it was Friday night now. Yeah, me too. I love you. I know. <laughs>